words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Several years ago, the University of Pennsylvania made national headlines uh, for a sad reason. There were, in the span of 13 months, six students who committed suicide. And so the administration um, put together a study group on mental health on their campus. And they released a report, this study group, and in this report they talked about something the students talked about, which was pin face. Pin face. Which was putting on a good face, even though you're sad and you're depressed. And that was part of the culture of the university there. And underneath that, they said, the reason people were putting on this pin face was the students were striving to look perfect in their academics, in their co-curricular activities, in their relationships. They felt this pressure to be perfect, to look perfect in the eyes of other people. And that was leading to great anxiety and depression and tragically in some instances even suicide. Well, whether it's a student in high school or college, uh, whether it's somebody struggling with body image, um, whether it's a pastor who has perfectionist tendencies and is afraid to preach a clunker of a sermon, uh, whether it's a, a workaholic who's staying late every evening and working on weekends to kind of prove his worth to his superiors, we all can probably relate at one time or another to this pressure to perform and to look a certain way in the eyes of other people. Jesus wants to free us from that. Underneath of that is seeking glory and honor from other people. Jesus wants us to be comfortable with who we are and seek to glorify God with what he's given us. And in our gospel reading, Jesus teaches us some things that can help free us from this. This glory seeking, seeking glory from other people, the pressure to always look a certain way. He's at the house of a, an elite a ruler of the Pharisees. He's dining on the Sabbath day with a ruler of the Pharisees. And he notices at this dinner party, it says at verse 7, how the people invited were choosing places of honor. Now, in this culture, and in many parts of the world even today, the driving motive for life, for many people, is honor. They want to be honored by their community. They want to be perceived by others as a valued member, a worthy member of the community. 
That was a driving motive, a goal of life for many people in Jesus' day. And so uh, today you might, you know, there might be people who, if they're being honest with themselves, would say, you know, the goal of my life is to be wealthy, to have great material possessions, to feel secure in that. Well, in, in Jesus' day, if a, if a person had great wealth, and there are very few people who did, but for those who did, what they did with their wealth was to use it to build their honor. You know, if they were Jewish, they would build a synagogue so the community would know that this was built in their name. So they would be recognized as a worthy, valuable member of the community. If they were pagan, they would build a pagan temple or a public bathhouse that people could enjoy. And so that they would be remembered for this and honored for this. So honor was a key value in this culture. And, and, and at these dinner parties, uh, it was a way to display your honor and compete with others for honor. And that had to do with where you sat because that showed your ranking. And, and if you uh, sat near the host, that was an honorable position. The closer you were to the host or the most important person at the party, the more honorable you were. And there was kind of a rank of seating based on this whole system of honor. And so that's why they're fighting for this. And Jesus says, he notices it and he says, well, let's just say, not too subtle of a story here. You're invited by someone to a wedding feast. Do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. And he who invited you both will, both will come and say to you, you need to move. A VIP has showed up and it's not you. You take that seat. And Jesus says, and then you will begin with shame. You see the picture slinking away. In shame and humility to take the lowest place. And that's what everybody wanted to avoid. They wanted honor and they wanted to avoid shame. And shame was a fate almost as, as bad as death or worse than death in this culture. They did not want to be shamed in front of others. So, at this point, it might sound like Jesus is just giving good practical advice. Just kind of etiquette and how not to be ashamed at the next dinner party. But the point he's trying to make comes really at verse 11. He says, prior to that, you know, if you take the lowest seat, then the host may come to you and say, you need to move up higher. And then you'll be honored. He may exalt you. He may move you up. And then you'll be honored. And then the key is verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And now Jesus is not talking about a party host. He's talking about God. God is the one who humbles those who exalt themselves. And God is the one who exalts the humble. If we believe this, then we can trust God to promote us. And we don't have to get in honor-seeking competition with other people and try to shove them out of the way as we get to the best seat. God is the one who humbles those who exalt themselves. 
and he exalts those who humble themselves before him. So there's a warning here. The self-exalted will be humbled by God. And, and haven't we seen this over and over and over again in different realms of life? That it's often the self-promoters, often the people who will trample over another person as they climb the ladder, who in the end, they get humiliated. Uh, whether it's in politics we see this sometimes, or in the athletic realm, or in other sectors, even, yes, in the church, oftentimes, not always in this life, but oftentimes, pride comes before the fall. It's almost like a law, like gravity. What goes up must come down. Pride goes before the fall. Again, not always in this life. But this is a principle that Jesus says, this is how it works in the kingdom of God. I remember when I was, the first year I was in college in um, 1991, in the ancient days, according to my kids, in 1990s. Did you guys have cars in those days, Dad? One of my kids said. In 1991, I was a freshman in college, and we, we went to um, a place called Heritage USA. Some of you might remember what Heritage USA was back in the late 80s and early 90s. It actually went defunct, bankrupt in, I think, the late 80s, 89. Heritage USA, in its day, was the Disneyland for Christians. In fact, you had Disney World, you had Disneyland, and then the third most visited amusement park was Heritage USA. And it was built up by a man named Jim Baker who became famous and wealthy as a television evangelist. And uh, him and his wife, Tammy, and there was a recent movie made about Tammy Faye, built up this ministry. And I'm sure they started off with really pure and good intentions. But the ministry started to build up around them. Got bigger and bigger and wealthier and more powerful. And then Jim Baker started to get sloppy in his private life and prideful and a scandal came out and the whole thing came down. And I remember walking through Heritage USA with a group of us who were, at that time I was kind of part of that segment of the Christian world and I knew all about this story. And it was a ghost town. The mall was a a ghost town. There were houses on the periphery. People had moved there to be part of what God was doing with for sale signs all over the place. And the parking lot was crumbling with weeds shooting up through the cracks. And it was a visual witness to this truth. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled by God. How do you guard against pride in your success? What are you doing in your life to humble yourself before God? That's the warning. And then there's this promise, though. 
that those who humble themselves before God will be exalted. Do we trust this promise that God will exalt us in his own time and in his own way? And so what we're called to do is to do our best with what God has given us and trust him to promote us as he sees fit in his own time and in his own way. And believing this truth that God is the one who exalts will free us from the temptation to get into this honor competition, this seeking glory for ourselves. Well, then Jesus gives us something very practical to do. A a, a strategy that we can kind of build into our lives to help us grow in humility. He says to the man who invited him, look at verse 12. Jesus was not the most comfortable person to have at a party. (laughs) He wasn't concerned about lowering tension. Because then he says to the person who invited him, the next time you do this, why don't you invite not your rich neighbors and your relatives and your friends, the people who can pay you back? Because that's how it worked. You... In these circles, these elite circles, it was, it was the, 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 the social energy and the kind of even business capital, it, it flowed through reciprocity. I will invite you to my high-powered banquet and you invite me to your high-powered banquet and we'll all raise our status together and we'll get a good slice of this pie. And he says, now the next time you do this, don't, in, don't, don't play that game. Now, I, I, don't, I think Jesus is using hyperbole here. He, 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 I don't think he's saying don't ever, you know, when you have a party, you're not supposed to invite your friends or brothers or relatives or neighbors ever. Jesus often used hyperbole to make a point, to dramatize a point. And just later on in this chapter is where Jesus also uses hyperbole when he talks about following him. And he says, if anyone would come to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. That's Luke fourteen twenty six. So that's an example of hyperbole. Jesus doesn't want us really literally to hate our family. But he's saying you, you have to put me above them. And same thing here. I think this is Jesus using hyperbole and he says, don't, don't invite those who can repay you back. But when you give a feast, look at verse 13, invite the poor. And that word, if you look it up and do a word study in Greek, has an image behind it of somebody who's crouching in fear or cringing. They're so low. They're so destitute. They've been reduced to this posture of cringing and begging. When you give a feast, invite people like that. The crippled. The person who's limping. To get there. The blind. People 
like an elite Pharisee, did not normally interact with people like this. They were on the outside. He was on the inside. Literally, geographically. People like that, they lived outside the city. A ruler lived on the inside. And they did not normally associate with the poor and the crippled. and the, They did not bring them into their house normally. And, and so Jesus is saying, in order to fight against this honor-seeking, why don't you start relating to and blessing those who are of humble status? And it's amazing what Jesus is doing here. He's calling this Jewish leader, this teacher of the law, Back to the heart of the God of the Old Testament who cares for the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. We see that in our psalm reading. Blessed is the man who gives generously to the poor. He's calling this leader of the Jewish people to reflect in his leadership the heart of God that we see in the Bible. His heart for people like this. He's calling him this leader to be like King David was. There's an episode in the life of King David in 2 Samuel. I believe it's chapter 9. Where King David has gotten into this position of power. He's the king now. And when he gets into the, this position of power, he says, Is there anybody left of Saul's family? Saul, the previous king. And they say, yes. Jonathan, Saul's son had a son. And David and Jonathan were best friends. And his son's name, Jonathan's son's name, was Mephibosheth. And it says, Now Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. He was crippled. Here's King David at the top. And he hears about Mephibosheth at the bottom. The crippled. And he says, call Mephibosheth to me. And Mephibosheth says, when he gets into the presence of the king, what do you want to do with me? I'm a dog. And in that culture, a dog wasn't a compliment. I'm nothing but a dog. Why would the king want anything to do with me? And David said, give this man a field Give him the fields that were in his father's and grandfather's family. Give him servants and have him sit at my table for the rest of his life. This person who thinks of himself as a dog, this crippled man, is going to feast at the king's table. And that's a picture of the heart of God. Nobody's a nobody in the kingdom of God. If you're here today, and I, I, I would want to say this to students like at Penn State and students at St. Louis University and students in high school now and students who are caught up so much in the perfect image that they have to promote online, I would want to say to any of them or any of you today, if you feel like you've fallen short, if you feel like because 
of even your physical appearance, if you feel like you haven't lived up to your potential, that you haven't achieved what you hope. Nobody's a nobody in the kingdom of God. You're all invited to the king's table. And God has proven your worth at the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how much God loves you. That's how valuable you are to God. And as Christians, we're to reflect that in the way we interact with people who are of low status. We're called to, like God does, dignify the people who don't have dignity in the eyes of the world. And this is something that is a legacy of the God of the Bible. This idea of caring for people who are poor and crippled and lame. This did not come from the Greek and Roman world. There's a professor of antiquity named Peter Brown. He's one of the leading scholars of the ancient world. And in one of his books, he said, if you are an elite in these days, you did not give your money consistently to the poor. You did not make that a habit. You gave your money to the community, again, so you could display your wealth and gain honor. And if it happened to trickle down to the poorest of the poor, fine. But this idea of directing your benevolence on a consistent basis to the poor of the poor, the poorest of the poor, almsgiving, that was not part of this culture. It's a legacy from the Bible. It reflects the God of the Bible. And so in our Western world today, you know, if you believe that it's a good thing to do, to do what Jesus is saying to do, that's because of Jesus. <laughs> that's because of the God of the Bible. That's not coming from the secular world. And I wonder, the more we move away from Jesus, the more we move away as a culture from the God of the Bible, if we're going to move away from this. Because if you're just about seeking glory for yourself, why would you care for people like this? But this is the heart of God. This is what he calls us to do. And so here's a question for me and for you. How can I use what God has given me to raise up the humble? How can I dignify those of lowly estate? It's something for us to think about and pray about. And some of you do that on a consistent basis. And I see that and it encourages and challenges me. But, but that's something I've been thinking about. At this season of my life, how can I do that more? It doesn't necessarily mean adding more onto your plate. Maybe it's asking God to open your eyes to the humble and the hurting in your everyday life and what you can do to help them. Well, then Jesus says, we need to do this because when we do this, we're not going to lose, but we're going to gain. We're going to gain something in eternity. And he wants us to live then with an eternal perspective. Verse 14, and you will be blessed. Here's a beatitude from the Lord. You will be blessed because they can't repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The resurrection of the just. 
We know that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That is how we are justified. That is how we're made right in the eyes of God. Not based on doing things like this, but based on God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. That's how we're justified. Jesus says later on in Luke, it's the person who says, God have mercy on me, a sinner that went away justified. Same word. So we're not saved based on doing things like this. We're not trying to earn God's approval by doing this. But those who are trusting in God for salvation will demonstrate that trust through a life given over to glorify God and to good works. It will be the fruit of faith. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You will, and there is a reward. At the resurrection of the just. And so the question for me and the question for you is, do we believe the word of Christ? Do we believe the word of Christ here that God will exalt us and that we will be rewarded as we give our lives to the service of others and not seeking glory for ourselves? There's a great example of somebody just like this, and I'll I'll close with this example. Um, Philip. Yancey is a great Christian writer, and his hero in the Christian faith was a man named Paul Brand, who was a doctor and a hand specialist. And Paul Brand was received a lot of accolades and awards for his uh, medical ability. And um, he specialized in hand surgery, but he started to use that skill to minister to people with leprosy. And so he lived in India for a time and ministered to people, uh, millions of people ultimately were influenced and helped in India because of Dr. Paul Brand's work there. And then he moved to the United States and he set up a place in Louisiana. I think they call it a leprosorium. I think that's what it was called. And it's not in existence anymore. But people with leprosy would live there And Paul Brand and his wife, who was also a doctor, she was an ophthalmologist, stayed there and worked with people uh, who had leprosy. And um, Philip Yancey writes this about uh, Paul Brand. He says he learned, Philip Yancey learned from Paul Brand, that humility is not negative self-image. Brand knew his gifts. He finished first in his academic career. He received many awards. But he also knew that his gifts were just that. Gifts to be used in Christ-like service. And Yancey says, The most wise and brilliant man I've ever met devoted much of his life to serve the people on earth who were the lowest, the untouchable, those with leprosy. And why did Dr. Brand do that? Not all of us are called to do Exactly what Paul Brand did, obviously, but to have that Christ-like service. Why did he do that? What motivated Dr. Brand? Well, in one of his writings, he said this. And this is about living with an eternal perspective. He talked about the end of his life. This is a prayer that Dr. Brand wrote to God. I'm going to quote this. Listen to these beautiful words. He talked about the time when he's going to die and leave this mortal body. Hold me, Lord, 
in such awareness of your presence and your love that my parting from my body shall be but the opening of a more vivid intimacy and union with the spirit of my Savior. May my last thought be not of regret that I've had no more time, but of gratitude that I have so long enjoyed such a wonderful life. Then he who has been the inspiration of my stumbling body shall be the very light and substance of my soul. Read that again, just that first line. Hold me, Lord, in such awareness of your presence and your love that the parting of my body shall be but the opening of a more vivid intimacy and union with the Spirit of my Savior. He lived with an awareness of an eternal reward. That's why he was able to serve the way he did. God help us to do that as well. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your words and your teaching. Not just your words and teaching, but your example of living this out, even to going to the cross for us. You who were rich became poor for us, so that we might be rich. And Lord, help us to examine our lives, to see the ways in which we need to grow in humility, and to give glory to you as we do this. Help us to have eyes to see people around us who need to be lifted up. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Would you please stand?